All right, guys. Well, welcome uh, back to Thursday Night Worship. Uh, thanks for taking a few moments there to uh, just give as well as to prepare your hearts for the message tonight. I'm really excited about tonight's message. Um, but first off, I hope all of you had a wonderful Easter weekend uh, and that you were able to find new depths of ways to worship our risen King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, that's, he's why we do everything we do here. Um, he's why we worship, why we give, why we have these really awesome events like Open Mic Night and things like that. So um, always be invitational. Keep bringing your friends in. Keep inviting them in to uh, just this glorious King and risen Savior that we have. Uh, really, uh, it's, I can't speak enough about how good he is. And so we're going to jump right in, but I wanted to tell you guys kind of how my Easter weekend went. We had Good Friday worship on Friday, and then Saturday we uh, actually just kind of chilled, and then Sunday was actually pretty, uh, pretty awesome getting to celebrate uh, Easter, the resurrected King, with a church body, with our church community, and then we just took a Sabbath on Sunday. We uh, spent, Brittany and I spent time with Evie, uh, just at home, I think we got home and I just like put on sweatpants and we just picked out on like cheese danishes and jelly beans, which are half off at Giant right now. If you're, it's like one of my favorite things about Easter is jelly beans. Um, yeah, but I was one of those kids that really had this kind of love-hate relationship with Easter. Um, any of you? No? Okay, well. This is why I had a love-hate relationship. I can remember waking up as a kid one morning on Easter and going into the kitchen, my mom handing me an Easter basket full of like chocolate crosses and then putting me in these weird new pastel-colored clothes, taking me to church and us singing weird songs about like old rugged crosses. And I'm like, what is going on here? And I can remember after that, we go to lunch we uh, go to lunch with the crazy side of the family and celebrate Easter there. And after that, we come home and we take a nap. And I remember being in my room, probably about nine years old, and thinking, well, this kind of stinks. And you're like, why? Everyone that day was like, oh, let's celebrate Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed and all this. But no one told me happy birthday. My birthday fell on Easter one year, and I was the kid that got mad that everyone was celebrated a risen king instead of my birthday. <laughs> I've looked ahead, and um, Easter doesn't fall on my birthday again until 2020, so I have like two years to prepare for that. But um, if you know anything about me, uh, I love birthdays. <laughs> and uh, like probably really in an unhealthy way. Uh, I think this was bred in me because people forgot my birthday one year. And um, yeah, it literally was the afternoon and my mom was like, oh, hey, happy birthday, Josh. <laughs> and so she's going to listen to this podcast later and be like, that wasn't how it happened. But nine years old, that's how you remember it. And um, so it's the gospel truth. But I celebrate birthdays really early. I um, It was like January 1st this year, and I looked at Natalie, and I was like, it's my birthday year, and um, yeah, so anyways, enough about that, but based on that story, and based on maybe some stories that you've heard me share here in Kyle, or if you know any of 
like my testimony, I grew up in church. For me, um, growing up in church, growing up, I didn't have like a doubt in my mind that God existed. I kind of looked around and I was like, yeah, this had to have been made by someone. And so I was like, oh, yep, that means there's a God. That was kind of early on in me. Um, Never really doubted that. Uh, I knew who this person of Jesus was. I believe that he walked the earth, that he died on a cross, that three days later he was risen from the grave, risen from the dead. And um, I believe that because I was like, hey, one, people tell me that, but two, if this happened thousands of years ago, and this story is still going on, then there must be some fact to it. Uh, and so that was me. But I never thought that Jesus or God really affected my life um, until about high school. And so notice there, I didn't say I knew anything about the Holy Spirit. And that was because the church I went to never talked about the Holy Spirit. For me, the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit was a mystery that was never addressed. So imagine my surprise, my senior year of high school, I'd just become a Christian, and I start reading through the Bible and see all these different stories all through Scripture, not just New Testament stories, but Old Testament stories as well, of this person called the Spirit of God that is moving in believers, moving in the church, moving through God's people. And I'm like, wait, what is this? This sounds really weird. Um, it's a whole new side of scriptures that I had never been exposed to. So growing up Southern Baptist, uh, then experiencing conversion in the Assemblies of God Church, shortly after that being prayed over for baptism in the Holy Spirit, not receiving, I had this like whiplash of like, who do I believe? What do I believe in about the Holy Spirit? What is the truth here? And so I could wrap my head around God the Father, uh, even though I have like this earthly tainted view of what a father looks like. Um, I could wrap my head around Jesus being fully God, fully man, as much as you can wrap your head around that fact. But I could wrap my head around that, but I just didn't know what the Holy Spirit was, what uh, the Bible said. I knew kind of, okay, that's weird, um, but let's jump into that. And so I started searching The Holy Spirit, third member of the Godhead, for me, continued to be a mystery. And so, Bible school, um, I go to Bible school, and the Holy Spirit was mentioned more, of course, in Bible classes, but there was still this um, almost separation from the Bible classes I was in and talking about the theology of the Holy Spirit. I can remember one day in my cafeteria, I went to a school of about 900 um, like a really small Bible college. And I can remember one day in the cafeteria, the um, Pentecostals, because of course there are still cliques in Bible college, um, the Pentecostals, there was this guy stood up on the cafeteria table, blew a shofar, and started to prophesy over the cafeteria. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> like that doesn't happen here. This is Georgia. And um, I'm like, uh-uh, this is, I, I know what the Bible says about this. It has to be interpreted and all this. And I'm like, what's going on? Well, the funny thing is the vice president of academics is sitting in the cafeteria, and he picks up his tray, doesn't even make eye contact with the guy, 
walks out, dumps his tray, and leaves. And I'm like, well, if he's not saying anything about it, like, wow, this really must be something that just needs to be swept under the rug. And so for me, I started viewing the Holy Spirit a lot like my upbringing in church did as the Holy Ghost, something that was kind of mentioned as like a spooky undertone and honestly something that was absent. Seminary came and went. I learned all these fancy techniques of exegesis and reading the scripture and their original languages, all this, but no matter what my reformed professors in seminary taught me, I couldn't find the evidence that they gave and they presented to show that the only real role of the Holy Spirit is to be this Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, let your conscience be your guide and illuminate scripture while he's at it, friend. No matter how much I read scripture, that view and what, what I saw in the New Testament and the work of the believers, and what I saw really working in authentic lives of the believers just didn't line up. And so I went on this journey of like, hey, let, let me do this. Hmm, let me read scripture for myself. Um, let me take this into account. Let me do a lot of research. Let me do a lot of reading. And uh, I just believe that that could not be the extent of what Jesus meant when he said, I'm going to go, I'm going to leave you with a helper. I couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that this God-man walked the earth, he defeated death, and then he left so that he could leave believers with a conscience. That there was so much more to be found. So I jumped in the scriptures, I spent time in prayer, I sought after God, trying to grow more in my relationship with Jesus so I could figure out what this thing called the Holy Spirit was. I read, I read, and what I found as I read was that the Holy Spirit is more than just a side character in Scripture. Holy Spirit's more than just the um, stepchild of the Trinity. Um, it's the one that we tend to look at and say, oh, I understand God the Father and God the Son, but not really the Spirit, and we tend to forget about that. But there's so much more depth in life in the Holy Spirit than we seem to know and walk in. So that's kind of just brings us to here and now and where I'm at. Um, coming into Chi Alpha, if you don't know, Chi Alpha is an interdenominational ministry. We are for everyone and anyone to come in and experience Jesus. Um, doesn't matter if you like what your background is. That doesn't matter if you're Reformed or if you're not or if you're Southern Baptist or if you're Assemblies of God. Now, that being said, your staff, Natalie, myself, Brittany, Blaine, we are credentialed through the Assemblies of God, uh, which is a fancy way of saying, hey, we're Pentecostal. Um, if you don't know what that means, it means we believe that the Holy Spirit moves and is active today in the lives of the believers, that the miraculous still does happen, and that uh, we believe that the Holy Spirit plays a vital role in the church today, just as he did with the early church starting on the scene and throughout history. So that's kind of where we're coming from with this, where I'm coming from with this. So if any of this is new, I um, just want to put it out there and say, hey, that's where we're at. That's where my background comes from now. And um, I would love to have more conversations on that if you have questions after the message. But today, we're continuing our series on the letter to the church at Corinth, uh, first and second Corinthians. And 
what we've been looking at is what Paul says about corporate worship. And so, believe it or not, Paul spends a big chunk of his letter talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in corporate worship. Uh, so we're going to jump into the first little bit of 1 Corinthians 12 today. But before we do, um, I want to set us up for success viewing this correctly and kind of prime ourselves for what Paul's bringing in to Corinthians, kind of put us in the place of the Corinthian church and where they came from and um, what they would be thinking at this time hearing from Paul. And so we're going to start off Old Testament and Isaiah. Um, we spoke on Isaiah earlier this semester. He's a prophet, speaks into um, this idea of a coming Messiah. And we see in Isaiah 42, this prophecy that's written down hundreds of years before Jesus. It starts off verse 1. It says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Isaiah continues later on in this book. Um, this one is a prophecy that's kind of told from, as if the words are coming directly from the mouth of the Messiah. And it's in chapter 61. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. The picture that Isaiah gives of the coming Messiah is that he would come in anointing and power and that the Spirit of God would rest on him. Let's jump forward into the New Testament, Luke 3, and in verse 21, this is the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, he's been alive for about 30 years, kind of a preparation phase, and then it starts here, verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. In this account, which is in all four Gospels, um, anytime we see something that's repeated in all four Gospels, because there are some stories or some parables that are only told in two or three of them and not all four, uh, it's just different accounts of the same story. But anytime we see something that's accounted in all four Gospels, it's like God saying, hey, really pay attention to this, lean in. And this baptism of Jesus, this story is told in some form in all four Gospels. But here we see that the Spirit comes on Jesus and marks the beginning of his earthly ministry. He goes on from here to begin performing miracles, to be, begin um, really his about three-and-a-half-year journey towards the cross, and then death, burial, resurrection. And so Jesus was fully God and fully man, and here we, what we see is the duality of God-man being anointed with the Spirit. This is a picture of the Trinity in full force. Jesus leaves his baptism. He goes to the desert and is, and is tempted uh, which I'm sure you know that story. If not, you could follow along end of or beginning of chapter 4. And in the next chapter of Luke, Jesus begins teaching. This is marks his first teaching in the synagogue. And verse 14 says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, 
news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues. Everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is Jesus saying, I am the one you have been looking for. And what I do from here on out, I do in the power of the Spirit. All throughout the Gospels, we see accounts of Jesus performing these things that were prophesied and even more. And everything that Jesus does, he does in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at John 14 briefly. We touched on John 14 earlier during worship, but in 14, 15, and 16, chapters of the Gospel of John, Jesus teaches on the Holy Spirit. If you have questions, if you're like, I don't know where to start in this whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I would say start here. John 14, 15, 16, read through it, sit down, write down everything that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, and then start praying through that. Verse 12, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, talking to the disciples, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. So what has Jesus been doing up to this point? Anyone? Open question. What's Jesus been doing up to this point? What are some things that, um, when you think of Jesus and his work, that he's been doing? Carpentry? Okay. Anyone else? Healing? Preaching, teaching, walking on water. This is, this is at the end of his ministry, uh, right before his crucifixion. So all these miracles that you hear accounts of, all the prophetic words that he's speaking, all the, like, by this time he's raised Lazarus from the dead. All of this, he's saying, you will do even greater things than these. Now, that's a crazy statement for Jesus to be saying. And it seems kind of like sacrilegious for us as believers to be like, we're going to do greater things than Jesus. And uh, like, I don't want to say that because I don't want to like get struck down. But most theologians, when they read this, they think that Jesus isn't, isn't saying greater things as in quality, but greater things in quantity. Imagine Jesus did a lot during his three and a half years of ministry. He did a ton. There's stuff that, there's actually a verse, I think, in one of the Gospels that says, like, Jesus did even more than this, but if I was to list this, it would take days. Um, and so Jesus did a lot, but what if there were many of him 
these little Christs that were doing greater things, the same things that he did in greater quantity for years, for decades, for millennia afterwards. You may not know this, but the word Christian actually breaks down to being little Christ. So Jesus is saying, you'll do greater things in greater quantity than what I have done, but in order for you to do that, I have to leave. That's a huge statement. It's like, wait, you're leaving, you're saying you're going to die, and then you're going to come back, but then you're going to leave. That doesn't seem like a master plan for success, to just like come back from the dead and then leave after that. Um, if that was me writing this plan, I would say, hey, I'm going to come back from the dead, but I'm just going to stay around and like, show everyone. But what Jesus does is he sticks around for about 40 days, and then he ascends to heaven, and he leaves the disciples waiting on the Holy Spirit. This is accounted in Acts chapter 1, which is kind of a, a companion to the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes both of these books, and he continues in Acts 1. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized or immersed with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel because they're still looking for the Messiah to come and redeem Israel? And Jesus' response is, it is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So Luke here is saying the story of Jesus began, but it continues with the work of the Spirit. All that Jesus began to do and teach in Acts, the Spirit of God comes on the first disciples, and the church explodes onto the scene. And since then, it's just been continuously growing. But it comes onto the scene, and what the God, if you look at the Gospel of Luke and then Acts, they read almost the same, Jesus doing something, and then you can see the same thing being done in Acts. There's people being raised, uh, Jesus raises people from the dead. In Acts, you see people raised from the dead. You see Jesus performing miracles. Uh, the disciples are performing miracles. It happens like this over and over again through the power of the Spirit. And so to make myself clear here, um, as we talk about the disciples and as the church continues to explode on the scene, what I'm not saying is that Christians today or Christians then were the same level as Jesus. Or not. Jesus was fully God and fully man. We are just fully man or fully human. And so uh, we, 
that's it, period. We're not God. Like, we don't have God power. Uh, and so we are fully human. But if we are followers in Christ, we have the same spirit on us, in us, working through us to carry forward the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus lives on by the spirit of God. So question for the group. Are there still people who don't know Jesus? Yes. Then the Spirit is still moving and is still active today. That's a huge point right there. If you're journaling, write that down. People don't know Jesus, so the Spirit is still moving because the Spirit propels forward the story of Christ. It's not just for the early church. This is setting the framework of what we're about to read here in 1 Corinthians and Paul talking about how the Spirit moves in the church. Are you still with me? That was a lot of background, but we're, we're getting there. So let's look at what Paul's saying to the church at Corinth. Last week we talked about communion, and then we jumped to the very next verse, and Paul says, now about the gifts of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. For Paul, first off, this is a very important topic to bring up. He says, oh, hey, let's talk about the Lord's Supper, which is central to Christian worship. And then secondarily to that is the work of the Spirit in the church. This is huge. Paul's beginning a new section of his letter, and he's saying here in his own way, let's move on. Now let's talk about something new the gifts of the Spirit. Now, we read the Bible and whatever translation we're reading, and it is a translation. The Bible was originally written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And this section, the word used here for gifts of the Spirit is pneumaticos. Uh, and so what that means is it literally translates to things of the Spirit or activity of the Spirit. What's interesting is that the phrase spiritual gifts does not show up one time in the entire Greek New Testament. So if you've heard of spiritual gifts before, that's something that's been translated into Scripture. It's still reliable, yes, but we have to look at the original languages as well to get the original meaning What's interesting about that and why I bring that up is because when we as 21st century Americans read spiritual gifts or hear about spiritual gifts or take an inventory to figure out which spiritual gift we have, what goes through our minds is not what Paul originally intended when he wrote these letters to the church. We have to rethink this. So in our context, the word spiritual, it means immaterial, ethereal, unreal, but for Paul, what the word spiritual meant was animated by the Holy Spirit. This word pneumaticos, it actually sounds a lot like pneumatics or like pneumatic tubes, tubes that are propelled by air. The word pneuma in Greek is the word for spirit, and it actually is um, like wind or breath of God, and so you can kind of see how that works. Like pneumaticos is propelled by the Spirit, act, the activity of the Spirit. And so for Paul, the opposite of spiritual is not physical, as we seem to think today in 21st century 
America. If it's physical, it's not spiritual. And if it's spiritual, then it's something that we can't see or touch or feel or experience. Spiritual in this sense means coming from the Spirit of God. The emphasis is placed more on the gifts in our culture, but what Paul is saying in Corinth is that we have to focus on the giver of the gifts and not just the gift themselves. So we need to come back to the focus of Paul, the giver of gifts being the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. This is confusing. Um, It's confusing, again, because of context. And so, for Paul, the world consisted of three different types of people, Gentiles, Jews, and believers in Christ. And in the first century, what was common was for Jewish people to say Jesus be cursed because they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And the, there was also a saying in the Roman Empire that was Caesar is Lord. Saying Jesus is Lord was actually a very subversive statement that could get you tried for treason and even executed for saying that. So what Paul is saying is at this time, you have Gentiles, Jews, or believers in Jesus, and if you were an authentic believer in Jesus, or if you're saying Jesus is Lord in this culture, which you can be killed for saying it, then you have to be an authentic follower of Jesus. If you were just like, oh yeah, I like him, he's cool, um, you wouldn't be walking around the Roman Empire saying Jesus is Lord, expecting to be killed. No, that is something that you stake your life on, and with that, that's authentic faith. And so Paul's saying here that no one makes that bold of a statement about Jesus without being a true follower of Jesus. And if you're a true follower of Jesus, then that means you have the Spirit dwelling within you. And so the same Spirit that was on Jesus to do miracles, to teach, to preach, and so on, is resting in these people that are able to say Jesus is Lord, the authentic believers in Jesus. So how does that work? There's so much in Scripture about this. I said it earlier, we can have a whole series on spiritual gifts and break down each one. But I'm looking at this text, and we're going to take a brief look in what it has to tell us today of how this works in the church. And I encourage you to continue to dig on your own. Ask your small group leader. Ask the staff. We'd be more than willing to have conversations. But in verse 4, Paul continues, and he says, There are different kinds of gifts but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. Just like God expresses his fullness in the three persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is expressed through gifts, service, and working. We're going to talk through these three just real quick. First, through gifts. If we look in Uh, Paul's letter to Romans in chapter 12, he lists out um, the spiritual gifts. Many people look at this and say, oh, there's seven of these. These are the seven um, spiritual gifts that are just there in Scripture. These are the only ones. And so it says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, Give generously if it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. 
this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts that there are. Theologians would argue, uh, and many would agree, that when Paul gives lists like this through Scripture, it is a literary device to cause people to think and look at their context, but it's never meant to be uh, just the sum total of how the Spirit is going to move. It's a picture, but it's not the only one. So Paul's simply giving samples of the gifts here, but I think we've got off track with his idea of spiritual gifts as being this supernatural ability that's giving at or after conversion. Maybe that's not what Paul's getting at. So we look at this list in Romans. Prophecy. That sounds pretty supernatural to me. But then, directly after, serving. Thank you, sound and video and hospitality team. Do I think you're doing something absolutely supernatural tonight? Probably not. You're just doing exactly what you're able to in serving. That's not supernatural. Leading, teaching. I wouldn't say that me standing up here is absolutely supernatural teaching scripture or leading a ministry. There's parts of it that are supernatural but we're going to get there. I think the problem is, is that, again, the word supernatural, also with spiritual gifts, is nowhere to be found in the Bible. So where does that word supernatural come from? Thank you for asking. Let's talk about that. (laughs) 11th grade history, real quick, just a recap. The Enlightenment comes onto the scene, and what goes on here is that science starts to make sense of the world. Everyone following me with that? And natural laws are discovered that show, hey, this is why this happens. For instance, thousands of years before the Enlightenment, when it rained, people would say, oh my gosh, it's raining, that's a gift from God. But Enlightenment comes in, says, no, 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 it's not a gift from God. There are natural laws at work. How many of you remember the poster on the side of the science classroom? It's like, a lake here, and then you see the evaporation, and then there's cloud, and then it moves over here, and then it's raining. Yep, natural laws. That's the enlightenment saying, no, it's not a gift from God. There's actually this whole process of precipitation. And so there's a scientific reason for that. But there are certain things that science cannot explain. God, for one, that's a big one, so let's talk even more specific, hope praying for someone and actually seeing an answer to that prayer. Miracles. The dead coming to life. In a post-enlightenment world, natural is what we can explain, and supernatural is what we cannot. For Paul, he would look at you and say, wait, what? All of it is from God. All of it is a gift. Paul is simply saying in these passages, what are your gifts? What has God given you? Walk in that. We look at people, and I don't think there's any coincidence that if they're really good at something, we say, oh, they're gifted in that. What I think Paul may be getting at here 
is that when you start to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit crashes into your life, and the Spirit picks up the gift, the thing that you're talented at. He animates it, and he magnifies that gift, and he repurposes it to tell and propel the story of Christ forward. Now, yes, I definitely agree in supernatural gifts like prophesying and the, the crazy miracles and all that. We're going to get to that in a minute. But I think it also could be something that's so natural as well. The thing that God created you in his image and made you for, and what Paul's saying here is the Holy Spirit works through that, and he magnifies it, and he uses that to tell the story of Jesus. The Spirit takes your natural gifts, picks it up, pushes them into the story of God. And Paul's point isn't, which of these seven gifts in Romans do you have, but what do you have that you're talented in? What do you have? Leverage it, open it up, use it for the sake of the kingdom of God. So it may definitely be supernatural stuff, but it could be the natural stuff as well. So another way second way that Paul talks about the Holy Spirit working in the church and moving is through services. Other translations use the word activities of the Spirit. In verse 5, he says, there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Services or activities in this sense are the places in which you are called to serve. This is the role that you play in the mission of the cross, in the mission of the church and spreading the kingdom of God this world. In other words, maybe even more buzzworthy now, vocation. If you've heard of that, heard of vocation, it's a sense of calling worked out in what you do as a career. And so um, my vocation, I fully believe, is to teach the ways of Jesus, maybe not necessarily standing and speaking, but doing that one-on-one, doing it relationally, Whatever I do, I'm going to work out my vocation in teaching the ways of Jesus. Last semester, we talked about this in Ephesians 4. It says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. Question, is, are these roles here all the roles in the church? No, they're examples. For instance, elders, they're not on this list. That in itself shows that it's just a sampling of roles of the church, roles of the body. This isn't meant to be an exhaustive list, again. What Paul's saying here into the church at Corinth and to us today is that we all have a place to serve, and the role of leaders in the church is to make sure that you are equipped to serve in that capacity. Paul's saying that one of the ways the Spirit of God moves forward the story of Jesus is through the places that we are called to serve. Everyone's still following me? Awesome. Verse 6, the last one, is what Paul calls workings. These are the things that we think of when we think of Holy Spirit stuff in the church. That's kind of my definition for it. Instead of workings, I would just call it Holy Spirit stuff. It's what the Spirit of God does. The moments where the Holy Spirit shows up and he works. In verses 8 through 11 of this passage, Paul says, To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, 
to another a message of knowledge by means of the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one spirit, to another miraculous power, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. This list here is not about what superpower you have as a follower of Jesus. It's also not about what you don't have. But what it is about is the moments that you are open and willing for the Spirit of God to move and saying, show up. Do something crazy. These are the moments when you pray for someone and God heals them. Not because you're some amazing healer that is so in tune with Jesus that you have this amazing faith that can heal cancer and raise people from the dead. No, you are willing to be used by the Spirit and you say, God, just use me. It's the Spirit of God moving. These are the moments when God, the Spirit of God, gives you a word to share with someone. And you share it, and it's applicable, and it lines up with Scripture. That's important. Don't go sharing words that you think are from the Spirit that aren't biblical at all, because then it's not the Spirit of God moving. Yeah. Um, it's the Spirit that works, and you that are being willing to be used. These are moments of the miraculous. There were the moments that you hear the stories of the church exploding onto the scene because it's the working of the Holy Spirit doing what the Spirit wills. The question you should ask in all of this is if you're opened or closed to this happening. And how much could happen in our community, in our campus, in our city, in our churches, if we were actually open for the Spirit to work? I think what a lot of people say is, yeah, I'm open for the Spirit to work, but then you get along and you're like, yeah, I don't want that to happen to me. Uh-uh, like, nope, that means i got to give away a little bit of my control. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Holy Spirit's not going to push on you. You have to be willing and receptive. Now look at what Paul says in verse 7 to wrap it up. It says, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To each one. If you follow Jesus, you're on that list. The manifestation of the Spirit is for the common good. Don't miss this, because I think what Paul says in this verse is central to every bit of Paul's theology on the Holy Spirit. Everything the Holy Spirit does, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers is for the common good. Everyone, if you believe in Christ, that's you. The manifestation of the Spirit, the Spirit working in and through you today, not yesterday, not just the early church, not just the age of the apostles, but everyone who believes in him today, right now, the Spirit works in and through. And why is that? For the common good. The point of the gifts is not the gifts. 
That's why I spent a ton of time here talking about the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Spirit of God coming on him. The point of the gifts is not gifts. The point of the gifts is fruit. I find it interesting that Jesus, in the middle of teaching on the Holy Spirit in John, he branches off and he talks about, I am the vine and you are the branches, and gives this um, metaphor of bearing fruit, abiding in Jesus, and abiding in the Spirit of God. Because Jesus knows it's not about the gifts, it's about the fruit. It's for the common good, to build up the body, to push forward the story of Jesus into a dark place. So it's not only what the Spirit can do in you, but what the Spirit can do through you. And as I traveled through this journey of examining the scriptures and thinking through the Holy Spirit on my terms and what the scriptures were saying and asking mentors and coming and really challenging my belief there, I found that this verse here of Paul talking and saying this is the point of it all, that the Spirit works not for my betterment but for the common good of believers and for the church. Our role is to be open to the Holy Spirit and our gifts open to the Holy Spirit where we're called to serve and open for the workings of the Spirit in miraculous ways. So today as the band comes up and we close, I want to give you a little bit of time to reflect on three questions here. First, do you really want the Holy Spirit? That's a hard question because Jesus says, if you're in me, you have the Holy Spirit already. But do you really want that? I think a few years ago, I probably would have said no, to be honest. If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. But do you really want it? Are you tired of living a flat, boring, cerebral faith? Not just this intellectual belief, but do you want more? A living, intimate relationship with Jesus, with the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit's a person. Not just a person, but a person of the Trinity, a person of the Godhead. Just like any person, you can be close or far away. If the answer to that question for you is yes, then know that the Holy Spirit's going to challenge you and push you. The Spirit of God does illuminate the Scripture, but with that comes conviction. Not guilt or shame. Conviction and guilt and shame are two different things. Guilt and shame are from the enemy. They're not part of Jesus. But conviction is this reading scripture, doing what it says, walking in obedience because we feel deeply convicted to do that. That comes from the Holy Spirit. So do you want the Holy Spirit? That's the first question. Second question is why? Why do you want the Holy Spirit? Do you want the Holy Spirit for the warm, fuzzy feelings? the crazy story of miracles, for the Spirit to move through you as I've been talking about? Or do you want the Holy Spirit for the common good, to grow the kingdom of God, 
to see your friends, family, people you care about, people you don't know halfway across the world come and be a part of the story of Jesus that's propelling through history. Lastly, where does the Holy Spirit want to carry forward the story of Jesus in and through your life? Let's think about practical action steps. I think this is a question that we can get very cerebral with, and we can think, oh, hey, like, this is just an internal thing. But I think God calls us to take steps of obedience, and a lot of times those are tangible action steps that we can do here and now. What is God actually calling you to do through the power of the Holy Spirit? The gifts are great, and I believe they're needed in the church today, and they're valid for the church today. But if we're just seeking the gifts of the Spirit and we're not seeking the giver, then we miss the entire point. It's about the giver of the gifts. So we have to seek the gifts and seek the giver more than that. And you're going to find yourself in situations. You're going to find yourself in places that you've never imagined. Just by following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, you're going to see people coming to Jesus because you're shepherding and propelling forward the kingdom of God. Tonight, we're going to have some students and staff over on the sides. And if you want to pray with someone, we're not going to do any weird, like, hey, let me pray for the Holy Spirit for you. Like, we believe the Holy Spirit is present in this room. But if you need to pray with someone and really examine these questions together, we're going to be on the sides. There's prayer buckets as well. We believe in the gifts here at Kyle. And so if you're here and you believe that God's placed a word on your heart to share with the community, I would love to hear that and process that with you and um, discern with you if that's something valid to bring. And this isn't just now, but this is every week. If God is moving in that way, we don't want to like quell what the Holy Spirit's doing. So operate in that. Reflect on these questions. Ask these hard questions. Do some soul searching and ask God to just meet you where you're at. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for just shepherding us so well, but leading us besides still waters. Even so much so that when you leave, that you give us your spirit to walk with us and sustain us and to continue doing your work, that you give us empowerment through your spirit. May we never be distracted just by the gifts that we don't look towards the giver. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fall in our lives. Would you change our community, change our outlook, what you do in the church and how you do it. Help us to come together and just love each other well as we love you and seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.